Thanks for joining us today for another Talking Talent. I'm with Natasha here from Direct Rail Services. So Natasha, for those people who won't know Direct Rail Services as you're not a kind of a household brand, do you want to explain a little bit about who you are and what you do? Certainly. Uh, Direct Rail Services are a freight train organisation. We're a wholly owned subsidiary of the Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, which is a non-departmental public body um, who are looked after by BASE. That makes us actually only one of three still publicly owned rail companies in the in the country. Okay. And, and what sort of materials do you ship? Um, we help the uh, NDA to deliver their mission. So our primary reason for being is we're a nuclear first business, which means that our business is built around the, the movement of nuclear material on the railways. We pride ourselves on being safe, secure and reliable, which as a member of the public, when I'm outside of work, I'm delighted about. We really work very hard to make sure that there's no risk to the members of the public by what we do. But we also do lots of things that you would expect a rail freight company to do. So we move things for house, household names like Tesco's and Sainsbury's. Uh, we move your shopping, basically, right. uh, around, the, uh, around the rail network to make sure that you get your food when you need it to. We run uh, charter trains and we're also um, one of the companies that are called on when the leaves need removing from the line. Right, so I can blame you when you... autumn comes and every train is delayed. Um, every train luckily isn't delayed as part of that because we provide an excellent service uh, as part of that. <laughs> we also, during things like the Beast from the East, we're responsible for, um, for running some of the snow ploughs on behalf of Network Rail to keep the network up and running. Okay. You mentioned nuclear there. I'm assuming that's why we have such stringent security to get in here today. It is. I'm glad to see our systems are working. Well, you, you don't, clearly don't know me because I've slipped through the net. Um, <laughs> Let's hope that's not the case. <laughs> um, before we talk about anything kind of HR and recruitment focused, though, first of all, I believe congratulations are in order. You won an award last week. I, I did. Thank you very much for bringing that up. It was, uh, it was with the Rail Freight Group and I won uh, an award for individual contribution, particularly focused on equality, diversity and inclusivity. Um, I, I do have a team around me that helps me to deliver that, but it was, it was quite humbling to receive an award, bearing in mind that although I've been in the nuclear industry a long time, I've only been in the rail sector just over two years. So to be recognised by my peers... For, for things I'm doing that and that my team are helping me deliver um, that I think are just common sense w was really, really nice. And I was delighted on the evening um, that I, I was on a table with my peers from Direct Rail Services to help me celebrate that. Okay. Um, I know we've talked kind of offline a little bit about diversity and inclusion. And you're, it sounds to me like you're a big believer of having a completely gender-neutral long list and ensuring that there are equal numbers of men and women. Now, yep. this is a bit of a hot topic at the moment, and I speak to a lot of people who sit on both sides of the fence with this argument, and there are some people that would say that having a gender-neutral long list doesn't always lead to a meritocratic hire, and that you would sometimes find people on that long list who are there because of their gender, and perhaps not on merit. What would you say to those people? Um, I can see why some people would, would think that. And probably maybe 10 or 15 years ago in my career, I might have considered that that was, that was definitely the case. When I've talked about positive or, or heard talk about in the past positive discrimination, that women are on a, a, on a list simply because they're, they're a woman, um, it, it often undervalues what skills and competence and experience a woman has gained. 
We don't approach our long list from that perspective. Anybody that's on our list must have the skills and experience that we're looking for. So we're not just making up numbers. What we do is we reduce the long list. If we don't have enough women, then and we say maybe we wanted 20 people on our long list and we've only got five women, we're only going to have five men against that as well. Right, okay. So you use it as a, as a kind of... A filtering tool as well. We do. We, we, do. We, we always make sure that they've got the skills and competency because I don't want anybody to ever say in the future that woman only got the job because she was a woman. That woman has to be able to get the job because she has the right skills and experience to deliver what we need the people to deliver. And at the end of the day, we're not taking somebody on simply because they're a woman, but they have to have an equal opportunity to, to fight their corner from that perspective. And, uh, and it gives... It gives various outcomes. We don't always get the woman. The woman isn't always appointed. Um, it, we probably get a 50-50 outcome on it. But the best candidate wins. Okay. So it is still meritocratic and it is always based on skills and experience. Always. Always. Excellent. Um, and obviously you, you won this award for contributions to the wider industry. Do you feel that your work here with direct rail services will have a ripple effect with the rest of the industry? I really hope so. Um, I have to say, I think in, in a lot of ways we're leading the way um, from an ED&I perspective within certainly within the freight part of the rail industry mm. um, and if I give you some examples for that we've um, we have a, a training academy here which looks to take on train crew um, and for a business of our size which is around about 470 people we um, we are without doubt leading the way in our recruitment of female train crew we currently have six who are active, so that's qualified as train drivers or qualified as a train person, which is somebody who prepares the train and does a lot of work to make sure that the train drivers can, can get off. We, um, we actually, as part of our recruitment process around that, we make sure that all of our candidates to, to be train persons are suitable to become train drivers of the future. So hopefully whatever we're doing to take on our train persons at the moment will stand us in fantastic stead going forward a lot of our rail freight colleagues haven't taken that approach and simply are very reactive to to, uh, to train crew recruitment we have set set ourselves up to at least once a year to, to have a whole new batch of people coming in so that we've always got people coming out of their training to, to enable us to to meet the needs of the industry going forward Okay. We're also doing things like when we're not talking specifically about operational staff, we might be talking about engineers. We've made it uh, uh, our policy to go out and look at gender balanced recruitment from that perspective as well. Um, if I look at the recent batch of engineering apprentices that we've taken on, actually 75 percent of them have been women, uh, which is uh, um, unheard of in our industry, unheard of from the point of view that um, we've never had women uh, um, engineers with the business previously. And they're varying in age, varying in um, life experiences. And we wanted to make sure that when we're talking about diversity, we're not simply continually talking about gender. I know a lot of this discussion that we're having now will be around that, but we're looking for people from different backgrounds, with different life experiences, not always that if we've got to take somebody on, they've got to have a degree or they've got to they've got to have a certain life experience. We're looking for different opinions because different opinions give us a better outcome. Okay. We've also done done a lot of things around changing how we ask people to work. So we try now to move away from um, from people coming from nine to five 
if it's not if it's more appropriate that they work in a different way we'd much prefer to benchmark against the outputs that they have from the role that they're providing and that can be things like if i give you an example of what we've done with our it team we've asked our it team to work differently so what that means is they work longer hours but they do it under a fewer, a fewer number of days. It's something called compressed hours. And for probably around about 50% of our ICT team, that means that they work nine days out of 10. But the benefit to the business is that is firstly, it retains people because people like to have an additional day off every two weeks. Wouldn't you? Yeah, I would. Yeah. Um, but, it, but what it does is it gives our business a, a wider coverage of IT outside normal working hours because we're a 27, tw- sorry, 24-7 business, mm. which means that um, our office staff get full use of our IT team. But those operating in our control room or those operating in our engineering department might not benefit so by extending our the working hours of our team, we give them more. Uh, we give our people more access to uh, IT, but we also help our IT team to to manage their work life balance. Okay, it sounds like you've done a lot of things right, and you're now seeing the results of this, which is brilliant. Mm. What recommendations or what advice would you give to other people who are perhaps in your position, five or ten years ago, who are looking to implement change and who are looking to change the dynamic of an organisation? What would you tell those people? Well, to me, the, big, the biggest thing really is um, we try and approach things here by saying yes. Our, our default position is when somebody comes to say to us, can I change my hours of work or can we do this in a different way or culturally can we do something different is to say yes and then try and find a way around it. Okay. So, for example, we've just been a, a, approached by our union colleagues from ASLEF, who are uh, our train crew union, um, to put together a menopause policy. And um, we're absolutely delighted, firstly, that they've approached us and, uh, and that they feel that we're doing enough in other areas that they're able to focus on something which is also becoming a hot topic. And hot being the operative word, as I'm a woman of that kind of age and hot flushes are, are no fun, let me tell you. Yeah. But, but what we want to do is we want to have a policy in place where we've, where we've spoken to those people who are directly impacted on it, so women of a certain age. Um, and we want that topic to be something that's widely spoken about. Yeah. So I've mentioned that we've got a, a gender balance executive. So half of us are women. Just by the nature of the work that we do, we tend to be women of that age. Mm. And we make it a topic to talk about because we know that our male colleagues have mothers or wives or sisters or daughters who either have experienced that, are experiencing it or will experiencing it. So we want to have it as an open topic. We also, we also do things like... Um, we we incentivize people to work from home we encourage people to work from home by providing them with new IT equipment and I would actively encourage people to do that because what that enables people to do is have life outside work and it also enables people to who might through changes to their personal circumstances not be able to stay with you for because they've got elderly care responsibilities or they've got childcare responsibilities or one partner needs to move a job and and therefore we retain the skills that we've taken the time and trouble to develop by being a little bit more proactive with our flexible working. Okay now hearing all this stuff you are preaching to the choir here because I'm a massive believer in work-life balance, gender equality and putting in place procedures and routines that will allow flexibility for working. But I meet with a lot of companies and a lot of recruitment managers who 
have a more traditional approach. Mm-hmm. And I can hear them now screaming that if you give people flexible hours, they will take the mickey. And that if you give people the ability to, to skive, they will do. And people will, if you give someone an inch, they'll take a mile. What would you say to those people who have that mindset? I, I hope they continue to say that to, the, to their people because what that will mean is all their staff come and work for us. <laughs> um, so we will, get, we will absolutely get the, the, the pick of the people because okay. um, you, you can't compete in, in, in the world of work nowadays unless you're giving something back that people want. I want where I work to be the most fun, the most, uh, uh, um, the most likely to, place for people to be able to come and be developed and, and maximise their potential out of uh, out of their career um, I know people don't come and, and it's not like 20 30 40 years ago where people took a job and stayed with a company for life and we don't expect people to do that here but what we do expect them to do is come give off their all while they're here and we will help them in their career for the future we believe in paying it forward so a lot of, I've had a lot of pushback from colleagues elsewhere in the industry to say with the, the academy that you put together and you're training lots of drivers and lots of train crew, what that means is we're going to poach your drivers. And yeah, they might do. But you know what? People go to them and then they come back to us because our culture here is one that rewards people for the amount of effort that they put in, not the amount of time that they spend with us. It, it rewards people for what they give back to their community. So we've introduced things like our corporate and social responsibility policy, mm. which gives people five paid days a year to go and to, to volunteer locally, nationally or internationally. And, and we, don't just, we don't just pay lip service to that. So the managing director and I went away earlier on this year to India and we um, worked on a women's empowerment program teaching English teaching IT skills to people in Kerala um, to to give stuff back we also do things locally like I've I've recently been digging in what was the most horrendous rain um, at Cark station where people go for um, to to go to the races um, and to make the station more beautiful um, because we believe in giving back to our to our industry as well Mm. as our local community we're very pli- privileged where we are um, in Safaris. We're in the northwest. Our head office is in Carlisle. Um, we're a big employer in a small pond in Carlisle, and we have our pick of people. And we have our pick of people because we treat them really well. It's a fantastically fun place to work, and you get to work with me. <laughs> well, who wouldn't want to do that? Um, do you not find that's a slightly double-edged sword, though? Um, being in such a remote location, yes, being a big employer here, if you get your culture right and you, you focus on your employer brand and your EVP and all that other good stuff, that you will have, as you say, the pick of the bunch. But do you not find that you're also in an area with a lack of talent? And that in some regions, mm-hmm. perhaps not so much in Carlisle, but there are companies who base themselves in out-of-town locations that aren't a hive of activity that may struggle to attract talent? Uh, No, I I, I don't agree with that. And I think that's very much down to how you approach your talent attraction policy. Ours is one where we'd like people to be based just around the corner. Uh, We have three principal uh, uh, locations, Carlisle, Crewe and Motherwell just outside Glasgow. But actually, we're really, really flexible and use new technology to make sure that people can literally be based anywhere. So we have drivers that, that book on from Gloucester. We don't have a depot there. Uh, I, I myself, I'm based in Lancashire um, and I travel quite a lot or use technology. So we provide people with uh, personal video uh, um conferencing equipment so that they can literally be anywhere and can share documents easily that way can can 
literally press a button and and be on video talking to somebody about what needs to be done as opposed to having to travel. What it does is it means that the recruitment pool is much deeper and much wider than it's been before. And also people quite like it that one day a week, two days a week, they can be at home working, which means that they get the opportunity to go to the gym, to look after themselves personally, which we actively promote here. You know, we're just doing a, um, a step challenge where we've challenged the organisation to walk 900 million steps in the year, collectively. I'm not expecting everybody to do that. on Fitbit? On Fitbits, we have Fitbit challenges. Um, we have, how are you doing? Be I'm, honest, how are you doing? I'm doing really well, so much so that I've inspired my husband to get a Fitbit and Anybody who knows my husband will know that that's no mean feat. <laughs> but what but what that does is it. it Your husband it, may see this, you know. Yeah, hey, he can see it. <laughs> he's been. He has really, literally stepped up to the challenge. Although he's not part of the of our team. Um, uh, but what it what having a step challenge does is it looks after pers- people's physical well being because we're encouraging people to get out and walk. Mm. But it's also had a massive impact on people's mental well-being because we're encouraging people to go and switch off from work and and just kind of go and walk around and have a chat with their friends, do a bit of walking as part of that. And it really feeds very much into our ethos about mental health. We've appointed a mental health champion here who um, has put together a plan and is leading the way within the NDA estate of which we're as I mentioned earlier part of a much wider organisation to make sure that we have things like mental health first aiders to make sure that it's okay if you're struggling with your mental health that that it's okay to to talk about it that's brilliant and we've had uh, just to give you a recent example of that we have we've had somebody who um, had some personal um problems with their own mental health due to something that happened in their family um, we as an organization have helped her to to recover from that and supported her to bring her back to work safely on that and it enabled her to identify when somebody else was experiencing some mental health issues and and to actually sit down and talk to that person and say you know I, I can see what you're going through let me help you and that really has become part of our culture it isn't just something that we're that we're doing because mental health is a big thing that people should be doing it, it's actually living and breathing within the culture of, of, of direct rail services that's fantastic and I know as you say mental health at the moment is having a spotlight shone on it quite rightly I think it's fantastic I think it's a really good thing what advice would you give to other organizations who perhaps haven't reached that level that you have with appreciating mental health and putting steps in place, what would you advise those companies to do as a first point of call when it comes to managing the mental health of their staff? Well, I know it's a bit of a cliche, but I would, I would encourage all employers to treat somebody how you would like to be treated if you were experiencing a, a mental health crisis. But I'd also like to say to other organisations to put things in place so it doesn't get to that stage. So to talk about mindfulness, to encourage people to meditate, to make sure people aren't working too long hours, to make sure that your processes are in place so that people are able to manage the stresses that they have outside work as well as the stresses that they have inside work. And I use the word stress advisedly there because um, it, it isn't stress that causes people issue, it's de-stress where people are in a distressed situation and I would actively encourage all of our competitors, all the people out there in different industries to actually train your line managers to be able to identify what that looks like because 
um, as human beings, we can make a difference. I personally am part of the um, of the rail industry's suicide prevention team, and I've seen the difference that just taking a couple of minutes to talk to somebody who you think might be distressed can make a difference to people not using the railways as a, as a way to end their lives. So uh, when you look at it from that extreme, I, I, I think talk to people, look out for it, make sure that you've got an employee assistance programme in place so that people can be counselled if that's what you need. Consider offering counsel to families of of your staff when they're off because those people take home their their stresses and strains from the from work mm. they they might be experiencing stuff outside of work that that's causing them difficulties so just be just treat people like human beings it doesn't take much it doesn't cost as much as you would think and it's certainly much more cost effective than having people absent from work I was going to come on to that. Now you've you've put all these steps in place and it sounds like you speak about it so emotively, it's clearly having an impact on you personally. Mm. Commercially though, what would you say the commercial benefits have been for you? You well, talk about less time off work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the biggest things for us has been less time off work. We've reduced our um, our average sickness days from uh, 11.72 years ago when I joined the organisation to less than six days. We're the lowest in the industry, in the rail industry as, as a whole, not just looking at a rail freight industry perspective. Um, you know yourself, absence costs the business lots of money, not least of which paying somebody to be off, but also in the lost productivity, in the lost work, in the difficulty is getting back somebody back to work. Um, so to me, it, it pays for itself. What I would be foolish not to do some of these things. Fantastic. So we've talked about diversity and inclusion, we've, we've covered mental health. What other challenges would you say you faced here from a HR perspective? Um, I think one of the one of the first things that, that really was very noticeable uh, to me was how reluctant people were to talk about things that made them different. So that might be their different religion, their different sexual orientation. Um, and, and to start with, we did a, an quality diversity and inclusivity survey and it was very obvious from that that um, that a lot of people didn't feel very comfortable they, they hadn't been able to talk about things that make them different and effectively hadn't been able to be their authentic self when they're at work mm. um, <clears throat> I hope that that some of the things that we've put in place and, and I'm talking about things that we've done we've still got a long way to go and lots of other things that I'd like to put in place um, but some of the things that that we have done um, have enabled us to um, to make the environment safe for people to talk about their sexual preferences without fear of of being bullied and or, or harassed about something. We've done a lot of training with our line managers to say bullying and harassment in this business is zero tolerance. We don't, uh, you know, if, if, if we find out that's happening, we obviously look to approach to retrain that individual. But if their behaviours don't change, it's a matter of saying, then I'm afraid you're not for our organisation going forward. That might not have been, that might how, how it have been years ago, um, and might not have been something that was pulled up. It is pulled up now. And as a result, people feel much more confident to talk about themselves authentically in our business. And that's really, really important to me. I feel very passionately that that should happen. What it has done as a direct consequence is in, in our most recent survey, an employee opinion survey, um, it's enabled people, we've had a 50% increase in those people who have been confident enough to declare themselves in the LGBTQ community, which to me is, is just phenomenal really. Um, uh, as part of our inclusion week, you've seen outside the, the uh, rainbow banner flying, yeah. uh, we've provided laces to all our people because 
to, to us, it's a why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we do that? We're part of the big rail diversity challenge every year. So we go and we bring mixed teams, mixed ages, mixed genders, mixed sexual orientation, mixed religions to, to go and compete against other people in the industry. And I think railway themselves are doing a lot, but there's a lot more that they can do. Okay. And you talk there about when you're introducing these policies, having to say to people, having to have that awkward conversation of, that may have been how it was 10, 15, 20 years ago, but that's not how it is now. And if you want to have those views, you're not fit for this organisation. How many times have you had to have that conversation with people? Well, I think when we started down our journey on this, we had to have those those discussions quite frequently. But people, there's been kind of a bit of a groundswell now that, that people know it's not acceptable. And they know that if they call it out, um, that, that something's done about it. Uh, we've set up something called the People's Voice Group here, which is a mix of our employees across our different sites and depots who come together quarterly to talk about what they would like to see as a change in the business. Um, and and we, we listen to what they've got to say. They asked for more visibility from the leadership team. So we do that. Um, as, as a group, we've put together um, a leadership development programme. So we're making sure that all our leaders, and that's from our executive down to our heads off and, and some of the next level down in our organisation, have a certain level of competence, not only talking to people about changes, but but being empowered to make those changes themselves. If they see something that's not right, as I mentioned before, it's about giving them the empowerment to say yes to something and we'll worry about how we do it and how we make it right for, for those people. We've also, for our uh, more junior managers who, who have aspirations to move up within the organisation and be promoted, we've put together something which we call ProDev, which is Professional Development Programme okay. for our managers, which basically gives them the, the groundwork in what it means to be a good manager, gives them the opportunity to um, to learn what good management looks like as opposed to the rail industry has quite a history of you you learnt by what you saw your line manager do to mm. you and and as a result we've had we've had to break down some of those to say that might be how it used to be but it's not how it is now we want our people to be professional to give um, a really good view of what our organization is um, and, and if we can support them to do that that's what we want to do it's interesting to hear you say this because it sounds like you've gone on, on a journey with direct rail services and you've tried Which is appropriate because we're a, train, a rail company. <laughs> there wasn't a pun intended there. <laughs> we're on the right track though. Oh. <laughs> I wrote loads. down loads last night. I was going to bring them all. I thought, no, <laughs> don't. Um, I've heard them all. Them all. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, that pun aside, it sounds like you've been on a journey and you've, you've transformed direct rail services from an organisation to a completely different kind of entity. Now, you're ahead of the curve, again to use another pun there, you're ahead of the curve on this. Yeah, all the, all the lights are signalling green for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say that there are some companies who haven't quite reached this level yet and are still either midway through this journey or this transformation or have yet to start it and still have quite... I don't want to use the word prehistoric, but quite traditional views on how to manage culture in an organisation. What advice would you give to those companies who are perhaps in trying to instigate these changes and trying to be more welcome to, for example, the LGBT community? 
Um, I, th I think there's a lot of information around and a lot of help that, that organisations can get. Um, we've been very fortunate insofar as we link up with a lot of our professional bodies. So we talked about the Rail Freight Group earlier. Um, there are a lot of industry groups that, that help us. And I'm sure for lots of other businesses, there are those out there. Um, I might also suggest that, that they tap into people like Stonewall, who can help them with um, a, a minimum standard that they can work towards or they can come and visit us. We happily do talks, do tours, um, explain to people what happens in our business. Um, they do have to go through a security process to get through the gate, and they're not allowed to take uh, photographs normally when they're here. We let you off with that. Uh, but, uh, uh, but, we, but we will talk to people about what we've done. Um, similarly, we, we try and put ourselves out in our own industry and in our wider industry to, to be um, almost representative of, of how good can look in a relatively short period of time. And that's made us very successful in winning awards for other things. So, for example, this year uh, we have been recognised by Women in Rail as the top employer in the industry. Um, our managing director has just won the uh, Institute of Directors Inclusivity Director Award and she's up for Businesswoman of the Year, the national award outside of the industry um, because of the work that we do around uh, inclusivity, diversity. Um, so I would encourage people to, to talk to others, to be on social media, to read what's happening, to not be scared of... of um, I, I personally, I, I don't like talking to cameras like this. I've had to work through it to make sure that our messages are getting out there. And I talk to anybody and everybody about what we're doing, um, so much so I can become a little bit boring and a little bit kind of on my soapbox sometimes. <laughs> but I think it's an important message. You know, we've, we're fighting and we're striving to make a difference, um, not just as a, a woman in, in, in a male-dominated industry or one that historically has been male-dominated, but also as, as just human beings out there. Um, we're missing out on a lot of talent if we don't change. And I would actively encourage people to come and talk to us. So we've talked about kind of opening the doors to and the, to the LGBT community, um, ensuring that there are an equal number of men and women on boards and in management positions. What do you feel the next change will be, in, not just in the industry, across the UK when it comes to employment? What do you think the next step along this journey will be? Well, I hope very much that it's, that it's a bigger and wider agenda. I hope that I never have to read um, social media posts that say, you can't believe I was asked this at interview. They asked me about childcare. It's, it's 2019. So I'd very much hope from a, from a recruitment perspective, those kind of things disappear. From an employment uh, perspective, I hope that we see nothing as a barrier in the future, that everything can be talked about openly and honestly. But I really hope that, that, that as part of the inclusivity work that we do, that we don't leave men behind. It's very different, uh, difficult for men, I think, in the workplace at the moment, particularly white men who have had the majority of the opportunities to not feel disenfranchised by some of the work that's happening at the moment. And I think it's really important to bring those people on, to give them the equality of opportunity to do things as well and not leave men as the forgotten, the forgotten folk. So for, for me, I would see that that's going to be probably one of the big discussions that people mm. are having is how do we not forget those people that, that, have, that have had the, the, the foot in the door in the, in the way that they have up to now. So you feel there is a risk now of almost yeah, positive discrimination and it kind of well, the not, tables turning somewhat. Well, not, well, not positive discrimination, but the opportunity that, that 
people have a lot of opportunity that they didn't have previously. And I don't want that to disengage men, uh, straight white men to say, well, we, you know, we, we're losing out. I think uh, f from my perspective, I would want to see that people of colour get opportunities, people of different religions get opportunities, uh, men get opportunities, women get opportunities. And I would want it to be that it's second nature that, that in five years time, we don't feel we need to have this conversation because things have, have changed so significantly, not only in our industry, but in, in, in UK PLC as a whole, where you get the job because you're the right person for the job, regardless of all of those things that, that you might see as a difference. Um, I would also like to really um, emphasise my feelings about people that think differently. So I'm talking about neurodiverse people here. Um, I think that's a, a really untapped potential that we have in, in our country at the moment. People that that might think a little bit differently. I always consider myself among, amongst that. Uh, people, uh, certainly earlier on in my career, described me as being a bit weird. Um, and I, it was something I really, really tried to change about myself personally. And it's not when you get to be a certain age and a certain experience and a certain level within the organisation that actually I realise that my weirdness is a superpower that I have. Um, and, and I hope that people allow others to use that and that you're not just a cookie cutter person that sits in something and it sits in a role and, and tries to deliver something because that's what's always been expected. To me, that's what diversity and inclusion means. It doesn't mean a tick box exercise. I'm really glad you mentioned neurodiversity um, because I think it's a really hot topic at the moment. And I met a lady a few weeks ago at a, a, another recruitment event called Sarah and she was giving a talk about neurodiversity and she herself used the phrase superpower. And it, I'm really glad that it's getting a light shone on it in the way that mental health has and that people are now seeing it as, mm. uh, as a benefit, uh, as an addition to your skill set. Mm. What advice would you give to hiring managers and people of your position who are looking to have a more neurodiverse application process and attraction strategy? Well, one of the things that we've found very successful is to have a, a, a name-blind uh, recruitment process um, and I've been very careful with my team to not keep calling it a blind recruitment process because I don't think our members of the public would be too happy about us recruiting blind train drivers um, so I've tried to make it very clear that it's to remove that automatic um, unconscious bias that some people might have to a name because a name might might spark somebody's ethnicity it might spark somebody's religious group it might spark the fact that they've been uh, uh, that they're indigenous from a certain population. Um, so we've had a lot of success from that point of view. From uh, training our recruitment managers, and I don't just mean people in HR, but the people that are actually responsible for recruiting to their team, what we've done is we've taken those people through an unconscious bias training so that they are aware where they might have a bias so that they can do something about it at the recruitment process. And I think that the final thing around that is just to say, don't always try and recruit what you've always had. Take a risk, take a flyer on some people that you might not have considered before, because do you know what? They might be absolutely fantastic for your organisation. One of the things that we do here in our, in our off, for our office-based staff is we have a recruitment process where we try to take everybody on through our administrative function our corporate services function and we take them in to do administrative tasks and, and what it enables us to do is to really get a good idea of the type of role that they could be doing. Mm. So we take, we might take 
um, school leavers on, we might take women returners on, we might take people who, who don't really know what they want to do in their career. And what it's been is it's been a really, really successful growing field for us to identify people and say, actually, they could go and work in X department. Their skill set is such that they might be really good at planning. They might be really good at spreadsheet management. They might be really good at health and safety. And they've never considered that as part of, uh, of their career. Mm. Um, and to, to help us identify that, we, we actually go through a monthly one-to-one. We don't wait till half year and, and have death by performance review. We have a monthly one-to-ones with our people to make sure that they're doing what they need to do to make sure that their development needs are tackled. And, and I'm talking about development needs there that not only help them to deliver what they need to on a day-to-day basis for their, for their jobs, but also for their career aspirations. And we've just recently, certainly within my team, I've just introduced a weekly one-to-one. Um, I view my, uh, my role very much as, as somebody to break down barriers and get people out of the way that are stopping my team delivering. And I'm only going to know about that if on a weekly basis I'm finding out what's pissing people off, what's stopping them delivering what they need to deliver. And then I I come in and very much break down those barriers, get things done, um, get things out of the way so my team can deliver. And I see that all as a wider part of how we do our recruitment, how how we change our culture and the values that we have in our business. Okay. And when it comes to your recruitment, because I did a little bit of research on direct rail service before I came here. Um, I've got to say the information I found about your recruitment strategy is somewhat limited. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's that you wanted to keep this kind of internal information. No, uh, absolutely I'm not. not. Absolutely. Asking anything Ab- too insensitive. No, absolutely the, not. The man from your comms team here is staring <laughs> at me intently right now. Um, no, absolutely not. We've, um, we haven't updated our external uh, website for quite some time, and that's one of the things we're focused on doing some work on now. Uh, but what we're actually doing is we're targeting a lot of our recruitment, not necessarily through our website, but through social media so we do a lot through LinkedIn um, through Twitter um, and we're using some of the some of the data that we get back from that to make sure that we're targeting the term which I absolutely hate which is hard to reach groups so we're doing something a little bit different from that and and getting a lot of feedback that we're having some success so if we look at our most recent um, train uh, crew recruitment that we've done we compared it to what we did last time whereas we did very traditional stuff we went in newspapers we tapped up people that we that we knew in the industry that might be looking to to move um, and we had around about 170 applicants very few women very through th- few people from the BAME community um, and this time what we've done is we've used the analytics that we've got back from how many people are applying to change tack through our, our recruitment process and do things a little bit different to go to different publications on different websites if we're not getting the amount of people that we thought we, we should be getting or the amount of people from different backgrounds that we thought we, we should be getting and as a result we increased our um, our uh, recruitment numbers and that from 170 last time to 360 this time and uh, we got a much higher caliber group of people that's very much been helped by the policies that I talked about earlier about the fact that we pay people really well we reward people really well and we reward them not only f- in a monetary point of view but we make the work interesting we make the development that they get worthwhile for their careers um, and people want to come and work for us so we, we don't we don't have a problem from that perspective now 